You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning, church. Today's focal passage is in Hosea chapter 13, verses 1 to 16. I hope you guys are ready for this. Michael, I look forward to your commentary. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, and he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made for their silver, and all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the shaft that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, you know no God but me, and beside me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled in their hearts And their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast. And there I will devour them like a lion. As a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took them away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. Her sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come from, for him, and he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness. And his fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt, because she has rebelled against her God. And they shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. This is the word of the Lord. There we go. You all can be seated, and children can be dismissed to their classes. To love. What's not to love, Rick? Uh, Hey, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to start talking for a while. How about that? God, thanks for your gift. And even today, the gift of just music and song and melody that we get to be your people uh, who raise our voices together and, and pray together and sing together. And would you give us eyes to observe the past, uh, this passage in Hosea? Um, would you give us eyes to observe the past and how you interacted with your people long ago and how you still interact? Um, today even, would you invite us into your story 
And when you show us how all this plays in our own lives, in our own minds, in our own hearts, and our own relationships, condemn us or leave us far from you, but would you let it draw us near to you? The place where we are best, the place that we are, we are made to be near you, would you let every single one of us draw near to you in spite of ourselves, but because of your love for us. We love you. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've always been drawn to like history, you know, I, not, like, uh, not like stuck in the past type way, but I just love history in, in, in the way that kind of gets to peer in on people and cultures and movements of the past. I love watching documentaries. My Netflix, as my wife reminds me, my Netflix suggested like shows looks a lot different than hers does, and it probably looks a lot different than yours, and, and most of it's just stuff that happened already, and they're telling the story about something. And in college, you know, I, I was a middle childhood education major. I was going to have a real job at one point in life, and, uh, and that all went to heck, but here I am. But, but in middle childhood education, you choose kind of two concentrations, and one of those was science, and the other was history. And so in college, I learned stuff that I've uh, long since forgotten. Uh, when I was a teenager, and even like, I remember my 20s and 30s, like most of what I watched was the History Channel. Like it was, like it was just, just about Hitler all day, every day, just watching black and white footage of stuff that happened a long time ago. Uh, I listened to Stuff You Missed in History Class podcast, like today. You know, that, that's, that's what I do. I, I love Jeopardy. And if I can sweep a category, especially if my family's around, if I can sweep a category, then I walk a little taller around the Graham house that day, you know? There's just something about looking back that frames the way that we see things today, that we see things moving forward. And, and if we can adjust our gaze just right in the moment we can view today with the mindfulness of what's been and of what will be, then we can learn. History is a great discovered, but it's also a revealer of truth. Uh, I learned a long time ago that, that the uh, past patterns are the best indicators of future behavior. And that doesn't mean that you're stuck with what you've always been. It doesn't mean that at all. But but you can have all kinds of great ideas and say, yeah, th this is what, a, this is like even just being a disciple and, and whatever it is. And, and I remember uh, having this conversation as I assess other church planters and we sit across the table and, and they remind us, hey, like listen to what they're saying, but, but really what you're looking for is evidence that these things have showed up in their life in the past. Because you can have all kinds of great ideas about the way things should be or, or the life that you should live. But you, you get to look and say, has that ever shown up? Or are you just living out of great ideas? And I should have's and I ought to's. You've probably heard uh, th this quote, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And that is true culturally. That's true individually at times. And again, we're not, we're not slave to those things, but we get to be mindful of those things. Winston Churchill looked upon history like this. History will be kind to me, for I intend to write it. So he's just like, yeah, it's going to, be, it's going to treat me just fine, because I'm going to be the one with the pen. Which is really something. One said this, history never looks like history when you are living 
through it. And here's a crazy thing. I think about that, and I try to push against that. This is the, the honest to goodness truth. I'm driving around our town. I dropped a kid off. This is like Halloween, trick or treat, going home, maybe to meet another kid or whatever. And I'm driving through, and this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, fast forward 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, what is this? What are we doing? Like, when you, when you hear about, uh, like, things that ancient cultures did, and they sound really bizarre, and then you drive or just walk through the neighborhood, you're like, literally, what is happening right now? Right? If you just tell the story of, of a trick-or-treat night, and you put it in a context 500 years removed, it's like, what is happening? So, so while that may be true, we never really know we're, like, in history when we're living in it. But sometimes, like 2020, we look back and say, like, what is, what is going to be said of this year that's just been bonkers, you know? Or, or we say things like, well, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And what that's trying to do is set a context for this is going to be looked upon in the future. What will it be looked like, right? Like, will you be on the right side or the wrong side? And what are the pillars that help uh, determine those things? Somebody with a weird name from some weird place said this, History is a gallery of pictures in which there are few originals and many copies. Which is really, oddly enough, just a copy of what King Solomon said when he said, there's nothing new under the sun. Like, it's all been done. And we think that we're living, that no one else has done the things that we're doing, and certainly the context looks different. But I say all of those things to force us to look back and around and forward. The fact that there has been so much written, not just in history, but about history, tells us of its influence. Everything that is has been formed by what has already been. And seasons cycle, patterns repeat. And for us, the majority of us, who find ourselves trying to live a life that's committed to Jesus, understanding his commitment to us. We get to walk through things like this in Hosea that was, that was you know, 700 plus years prior to Jesus coming on the earth. It's God and his people. And we get to look and we get to learn from them. We get to, to look back and see how they interacted. So for those of us who, who are living lives committed to following Jesus, if we don't if we're not trying to understand where we've come from or what, what our own patterns are or how to change in light of what's ahead, then we can miss, which is what makes this book so beautiful that it's thousands of years and, and dozens of writers and it's one story that we get to peer in on and we get to learn from and we get to grow in and we get to see that history is still being written even in the life that we live today. So it's kind of the, the big idea is, is this History of God and his people casts a long shadow back and shines a bright light ahead. We're in Hosea. We've been looking at his divine pursuit of his people. And from, from chapter one, we see that his people, man, they, they have forsaken him and they have left him and they have left their covenant vows that they committed to him and he's perpetually pursuing them to try to draw them, to try to draw us back to himself. And so we're going to look at this in, in three chunks. The first one is this. God's people walk in a shadow of greatness. 
We don't get very far into the story of God and his people to find purpose and to find order and to find our role as humans. Like I'm talking chapter 1, chapter 2 in the Bible we begin to see a role that we have, a responsibility that we have. We get to rule and we get to subdue all of creation. That's pretty crazy. That's a weighty call. We get to cultivate and we get to tend the garden of creation. Do you, do you know that that's to tend the garden of all of his creation that, that he has set before us? Now, here's the reality. There is none like God. He is not like us. He's completely otherly. He's far and away different. He is the creator and he is the sustainer of all that is. And I say it all the time, but, but he flung the, the galaxies into the universe and he binds DNA. He does it all. And in him, all things hold together. And that can be said of, of none, none of us. No one that's ever been can that be said. And what are we? Humanity? We are dust that God, this creator, he made the earth and the heavens and all that's in them and he formed us like some paper mache or some Play-Doh project, some clay project out of the dust of the earth. And, that, and, and we were very insignificant, but do you know what made us significant? He breathed life. He breathed life into us. And that life was, was our purpose, that we were made in the image of him, that, that all the earth is ours to enjoy, to cultivate, to reflect, to rest in with our God. There was work before there was sin. And it was delightful. It was reflecting the rule and the reign of our God made in his image to everything that he had put in the garden. Beyond that, the earth and, and all that's in it. And we don't have to get much farther to see that we live in but a shadow of the greatness that God had initially intended for us. See, your life probably doesn't feel like that was the purpose. of When you woke up, you're probably like, okay, Lord, what, what do you have for, I just want to enjoy you and cultivate this world around and to reflect your glory into all that I put my hands to. You probably didn't think that today. But here's, here's the thing. But, but what if you did think that? Ah, but I digress. We are three chapters into the Bible, and, and what we see is, is the greatness that God had established for us. By our rebellion, we gave it up. And, and Adam and Eve, they gave it up. This is Eden stuff, and, and the root to all of the things. Why suffering, and why darkness, and, and why is life so hard? It happens in the third chapter of the Bible. It's sin fell. Adam and Eve, they, reject, they, they chose not to trust the word of the Lord. They chose not to trust him. Uh, and, and, and he says, if you eat of the tree, uh, of, of that tree, you will surely die. And the serpent comes along cunning and crafty and says, will you surely die? And when they said, you know what? I'm not sure. It was over. 
They, they, they forsook the Lord. They failed to trust him. And so if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. That means that, that Adam and Eve, when they took of that fruit, they, they died. They died spiritually. They, were, they died physically. You know how I know that? Because they're not around anymore. They died. They will surely die. And so, so we see this shadow that we see in creation. We see it repeat. We see it repeat in, in Hosea chapter 13, verse 1. It looks like this. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. Now, Ephraim, remember, is just a city kind of representative of Israel, which is God's people. So they're saying when, when the city of Ephraim, when, it, when, when he spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. There was weight in his voice. He had influence about him. But he incurred guilt through Baal, right? He worshiped false gods and died. It's the same thing. He stopped walking with God. His influence was lost. Now, there are many types of influence, and some bad, some good, and, and some bad influence can be effective. Maybe you're like, oh, that's my boss. Like, oh, we have the, the bottom line is going just fine, but the way that you got there is really difficult. So you have like ends and means struggles. Or maybe you have somebody that's like a really positive influence, and they're just really kind, but they can't get anything done. And so that's really difficult as well, right? Uh, what, what are the most influential types uh, of people for the long game to kind of move people, to move culture? It's those who are steadfast, not built upon fads that are just going to flare up and go away. It's, it's people who have influence that's not compromising, but it's convictional. It's, it's the core to, to who they are. It's not driven by public opinion polls. It's influence that's, that's kind and thoughtful. It's, it's leaders who care for their people more than themselves. It's not cheap. It's not hired hands that are just doing the job to collect to the greater, even in the face of adversity. They do what's right, even when it's unpopular. So all that is Ephraim was high, and, and he has been brought low. They were once a city of conviction and honorable in word and deed, leading God's people towards God and righteousness and godliness. That influence is long gone. That's what Hosea is telling them. And we read on in verse 2. He says, now they are a bottomless well. That's not good. <laughs> if you're like, uh, what adjective describes you? And the Lord said, you're a bottomless well of sin. That, that's, not the, that's not the best context. They make for themselves metal images, and, and they're, they're great craftsmen. They have great skill and, and great silver, and, and people call them calf kissers, which is like the lowest blow in Scripture. It says it this way. Uh, it is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Baby killing Calf kissers. These people who once had influence, who once had pointed people to the Lord, are, are baby-killing calf kissers. I say that very slowly, because I think I could get in trouble if I say it more quickly than that. He goes on, and he says, that they're like morning mist. They're like dew. They're here, then they're gone. They're like smoke out of a window. See, God's people are established to be people 
of influence, but there was a certain type of influence. From the very beginning, the people of God have the privilege and the responsibility to reflect the nature and the rule and the reign and the love and the presence of God to all creation. We get to advance good to the ends of the earth in the name of and in the way of Jesus. That's pretty simple. Like in your own household, whoever you live with, whoever you interact with, you get to advance good in the name of and in the way of Jesus. You come home, crappy attitude, you're not, not doing that. Perpetual frustration, you're always fr- it, it goes to what we say every week, what Scott said today, wherever we live, work, and play. We get to advance good in the name of Jesus through the way of Jesus. That's what we get to do. Reminder. Because I get caught up in my head and I get grumpy and I, I, I think that my life is about something other than that. And certainly it shows up in a thousand ways, but it's not any more than that. It's, it's cultivating and, and ruling and reigning whatever God has given me, advancing good in the name of Jesus through the way of Jesus. What a responsibility to reflect the fullness of God. And, and that can be an incredible burden if we try to do that apart from him. That's impossible. If you set your heart on that, I get to reflect the character of God to everyone and everything around me. You, you will crumble. Like, you can't bear that weight by yourself. If you're trying to do that on your own, that's impossible. But if we do so fully secured in him, fully secured by his love for us, fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit to do the work that we can't do, fully trusting God will see his sovereign plans through and his sovereign purposes through it can be an incredible joy and a blessing. And to be clear, two things. One, the first point is longer than all the others, right? But, but to be clear, reflecting his nature, it doesn't mean, like, hear me. It doesn't mean that the government will institute Christ's values. Like, vote and do your thing. Have influence Run for city council. Do, do whatever it is that, that God would have you do in your own hands. But, but when I'm saying all of these things, it doesn't mean that, that, uh, that secular governments or a country like ours or the local city council or the school board, it doesn't mean that they're going to navigate life living out the light of Christ. That, that, that's not what this is saying at all. It's saying that we have a responsibility to influence that we get to shine light in dark places. But if our expectation is that the public school will teach Jesus, that's probably not going to happen. Nor does it mean that, that the stores that you shop at or, or the brands that you buy or the companies that you go that, that you spend money uh, on or, or the artists that you watch or, or purchase or listen to or the shows that you watch or, or your non-believing neighbors or the non-believing world out there, it doesn't mean that they're going to live the way or preach the way of Jesus. This isn't about them. This is about us in the way that we engage with this world around us. 
It, it does mean that we get to be the light of Christ in a world that's otherwise dark. It does mean that, that we get to be not of the world, but sent into the darkness around us. He was exalted in Israel, but he has lost his influence. Or in, or in the way that Jesus says, like, the light is hidden, or the salt has lost its saltiness. It can no longer preserve the world around. So three real quick kind of pitfalls of thought that can harm the hope and the delightful responsibility that we have to influence. One is, is this, that the darkness will prevail. Like you might be finding yourself saying, I, I'm trying and I want to live faithfully, but honestly, like the, the voice of the world is just so loud I just don't know if it's going, I, I don't know if it's like working. It's, it's just too dark. It's just too bleak. It's just too broken for Christ to be made known. I, you might be saying, I can't even do that in my own home. How can I do that in my neighborhood? How can I do that in, in the city that I live in? I, I just, I, I can't do it. For, for me to live this way in, in the midst of darkness, to be, to be faithful is just so difficult. It's, it's too dark for me to make a difference. How can I influence if, if, if he can't even influence? And I would say there are lots of hopes, but, but Jesus tells us that, he, that the powers of darkness and, and the gates of, of hell will not prevail. And here's the thing. The church has felt that along with you for a long, long time backwards. And here we stand. So when you hear people say like, oh, it's just like, uh, we are one generation away from the church just, you know, fading off into the sunset, they're liars. And that's not because I'm great. It's not even because you're great. It's because we have the promise set before us from long, long ago that will carry us through until he returns. The second thing is that, that darkness will live like light. And I, I spent a ton of time on that already. But, but apart, from, apart from the true light taking root in their heart, they won't live like Jesus. You can't expect the world around you that, that's fueled by, by darkness, that, that's not been, been illuminated by the light of, of Christ to live for his glory that's not going to happen. So, so what we can do is we can lament and we can weep and we can feel heavy at the brokenness, but we shouldn't expect the world outside of Christ to live like, like him. That's our role, broken by sin, but restored by Christ to influence the world until he comes. And the last thing is, is that light isn't earned. The beauty of the gospel of Christ is that every single one who ever beholds him as the savior of the world also once walked in darkness. This is the great equalizer of the good news of Jesus. This means that those who are in Christ, they don't walk in judgment of others, but as sympathizers. It means that we don't talk like, like they out there and, and then us in here, as if we have some self-righteous arrogance within us, as if we stand where we stand because of anything in our own hands, we don't. 
We are recipients of grace. And so what that means is, is it's we who once walked in darkness and we who have been redeemed from it by God's mercy alone. That, that we once walked in darkness is the spark that burns the light of love. That we once walked in darkness is the engine that drives the mission of making Christ known in truth and love. You have to know that you once walked in darkness and you've been snatched from that by this marvelous light. Let's move on, shall we? I didn't preach for like two weeks. What do you want from me? My goodness. Wow. Some of you are like, who is this? Just running around yelling at people. What is this? The second thing we see is, is God's people walk in a shadow of grace. Like, like the saying, in the shadows, it has a couple different meanings, and I'm, I'm playing with those a bit. It can mean like in light of, like in a positive way, like in the shadows of something, in, in the positive, or it can mean outside of, like, like in the negative, like a, a younger child is in the shadows of the older or, or whatever. And so it, it, can, it, can mean, it can mean a couple things, but here I mean it like this. Like, have you ever seen that old footage? It's probably like a GIF or a GIF or a video where there's like a guy standing there and it's like black and white and there's like a house behind him and the whole front of the house falls and slams down. You seen that? And like he's like standing there and he doesn't get hit because like the window, he's like standing right where the window is, right? It's just the whole front of the house, boom, and he's just standing there and, and the house falls around him. Like, like that but, but as if grace is the house that, that's coming down and they just missed it. That's what I mean by, by, by God's people walk in a shadow of grace. That they just missed it. It's all around them. Like, how could you have missed it? And, and yet they miss it. They're in the shadows of where grace is. They're in the shadows of where grace has been and they miss it. This is the way Hosea says it in verse 4. But I am the Lord your God. And, and he goes on and he talks about the history that he has from Egypt. And he says, you know no other God but me. Like it was, it was you and I. Besides me, there's no other Savior. And this is true today and forever. It was I who knew you in the wilderness and, and, and walked with you through drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled. Their heart was lifted up. So he's looking back at the shadow of what has been. He's looking back at, at history. They walked in my provision. They had favor. They had my grace. I bestowed riches upon them for no reason other than that they were mine. And yet, they, they had grazed to become full. They were filled. And their heart was lifted up. And they forgot me. That's what God says. And they were living in my provision. They were living in the grace that, that I was giving them. They, they had it good. And they forgot me. That's a difficult theme. I, I've given you all that you have and you left me. God has given his good gifts, his presence, his provision, and, and we bounce. And again, if you're just picking up with us, that's what this whole book of Hosea is about. 
God's people who were, were with him, and they committed to be with him, and to, they committed to be a covenant family, a community together, God being their God and them being God's people. And they said, we are out. We're done. We're no longer sticking to our vows. And they used like wild beasts to talk about uh, the onslaught of armies coming in. Or they use wild beasts to talk about the judgment of God. And, and here we see like lions and tigers and bears. Oh, it's like leopards instead of tigers. But So he says, I'm a lion. I, I'm a, a leopard lurking, just waiting. I'm a bear robbed of her cubs. He destroys you for you are against me, your helper. Where is your king now to save you in your cities? Where are the rulers? Where are they at? There's no one that can help you. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. And again, some of you are like, what is that? And some of you like know that they're talking about King Saul, the first king of Israel. When they said, we want a king like the other nations. And God's like, you don't. And they said, yeah, we do. And he's like, fine. I, I give you Saul. He's stunning and handsome. And he's probably really tough. He's tall. Here's your king. And then he says, and I took him away in my wrath. See, he isn't good for you, but if that's what you want, sure. Here's your king, Saul, a leader like the world values. One says this, uh, but, but there is a problem. Human kings are a disappointment. If you don't remember anything else today, man, that, that's one that you want to write on your mirror. Human kings are a disappointment. Lest you think that they won't disappoint. Because they will. All of them. Human kings are a disappointment. Cannot protect you and a human king especially cannot protect you when your enemy is God. What a window. Against the Lord, none can stand. At least sometimes it seems as if God allows things that go against his good intentions because he wants us to want him. He isn't forcing us to be with him. And we see examples like this and parables like this. We see the prodigal son. He goes to his dad and he says, Dad, I want all of my stuff. I, I, want, I want all my inheritance today. And his dad's like, but I'm not dead. <laughs> like, I'll be better on my own. Or maybe he said, you're not dead, but you're dead to me. That's what he was saying. And you know what the dad did? He said, here, son, take it. It's yours. The son goes and he wastes it. He finds himself in, in terrible ruin. The, the father allowed him to do that. That's what Jesus tells us. And, and the story is about God's faithfulness that when the son comes home ruined, that he invites him in and he, and he lights up the grill. He says, welcome home, son. Or this whole analogy that's been kind of the thread of Hosea. It's a spouse the adulterous spouse, I'm breaking my vows and I'm going my own way with other lovers. God didn't want them to leave. 
but he let him leave. And, and even later on, the, the idea of divorce and, and how the Bible talks about the, the allocation for divorce, like, like that wasn't God's design. Like you marry and you're together. And, the, and there are some, some uh, reasons why people can get divorced, but it's not flippant and it's not, it's not light and it's not just because I, I don't love anymore right? It's because there's danger involved and there's really difficult situations. And, and when someone asked Jesus about it, why did Moses give a certificate of divorce? Do you know, you know what he said? Because of their hardness of heart. So we get it. We see just a window into the, to the way that God is working. We, we don't know it all, but there are undercurrents that, that are kind of just coming off of the page. None of that undoes the greater plans that the Lord will complete the good work that he has begun in you, that the Lord secures his own, that the Lord awakens his own to life. And when we see ourselves and him as we are, there's no way we wouldn't choose him. We go on, your sin has bound you up. And some of you today might say, yeah, that's the way that it feels. Your sin has bound you up, and that sin has been stored up. It's a debt that you've not yet paid. My grace has delayed it from your reckoning, but my grace has, it, has met its end. And, and you've seen good days as a nation, you've seen good days as a people, but don't think that I haven't noticed there is a day that's coming, and it's a reckoning. And, and he says, and you, like a stubborn child, ready to receive life, the womb is open, and, and you're stubbornly, like an unwise child, you're not coming out to enjoy life, ready to receive life at the womb opening, but unwilling to make an entrance into the life that I offer. So he says, my grace is available and you've seen it all around you and you find yourself hidden in the only place where you escape or in light of the prodigal, as it stands, you are not home, but your pride has kept you away from me. And the last thing is this. God's people walk in a shadow of the grave. <clears throat> I've been to a lot of funerals. I know many of you have as well. Some of them are close to me and some family and some that I preach at, total strangers or, or, or not really knowing context that well, but there's always this tension. And the tension is always that there's hope in Christ, that there is a legitimate good news in what Jesus offers us. There is life over death. There is, there is eternal life and there's new heavens and new earth and there's all things made new and there's hope that God has to have overcome the world. And I declare those things and we hear those things and at the same time in the same room with all that being completely true, there the person lies. So when we read, oh death, where is your sting Anybody in the room would say, it's, it's right there. It's right there in the box, just across the room. That's where death's sting is. In that room, there's this, this microcosm of reality. We have all the hope in the world and all the promises yet to come. 
we have this tension because death has stung. There it is. And we're living in light of future realities, but in the moment it seems really difficult. See, since we were born, every one of us has been whirling towards the same fate, the same end, this earth. Unknown timeline, unknown path, definitive target. We are going to die. In death, we will find ourselves united again to Christ in paradise. Or we will find ourselves receiving our just judgment, eternal punishment from God for our rejection of him. So we read in Hosea, verse 14, and, and see, some say, shall I, and some say, I shall Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol, which is like the afterlife or death? Shall I ransom them from that? Shall I redeem them from death? Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. See, see all this tension, it's like, He's going to ransom them, shall I? And the assumption is no, because he says compassion is, is hidden from me. The, the, the end is near, you're going to meet ruin. And that invites us into the tension that we felt at, at funerals. God is gracious and he's kind. His mercy has no ends. His grace is sufficient. There is life in his hands. He will ransom. He will deliver. He will overcome. He will give the, the coffin nails to death itself for those who call him Lord and those who trust Christ as the only door to the path of full life today and eternal life forever. And we read on in verse 15. Though you may flourish the, the wind of the Lord will come and, and judgment rising from the wilderness and Samaria, which is another city, because she has rebelled, is guilty and she will fall on it will be torn apart. What he's saying is, is there are no future generations for you. It's over. Assyria will come. That's what all this has been about. Assyria will come and will, will wreck you. And you might blame the darkness of the world out there when that happens, but what God is saying, that judgment is from me. This is our end. When we have to pay the debt stored up by our sin, and we will, when this happens, its payment is death and our end is ruin. Look, there's one chapter left in Hosea where we will hear the final plea putting all of Hosea's words together next week. But for today, we sit in the already, not yet, of the hope of life through the promises that we have. We see the history of God and his people. We see the, the current status that's varied. It's different. It looks different. Your relationship with the Lord looks different than my relation, relationship with him. We put all that before us and, and in the background is a future hope. The history of God and his people casts a long shadow back and it shines a bright light ahead. And while they looked forward 
with this unrealized hope, uh, but a promise of what was yet to come based on their history and, and the past patterns of God and his people and his word, we have even more history because we get, to re, we get to turn the page. In a week, Hosea's page is, is over, but we just get to keep flipping. And we get to keep reading more about the history of God and his people. In that history, we see patterns of rebellion continue. In our own history, we see patterns of rebellion continue. We, we get to see that we forget him despite his persistent love and provision. And in that history, we see that his pattern is one that displays a divine pursuit of devotion in spite of us. We, we all have things in our past. And it all looks different. Things that we're proud of, we would say, hey, look at what I've done. Things that are regrettable. We all have those. We all have things in our past that, that we did that caused harm to others. We all have things in our past where we received harm by others. The brokenness around us. We have things that, that we did that built up. And we have things that, that we did that tore down. And the beauty of the past is that it is, that it's in the past. There's nothing you can do to change what has already been done. And some of you say, I know, but I wish there was. And I'm here to tell you that, that there's just not. You can't, you can't change the past, but, but here's the thing. Our former work, it's done. Whatever you did before you walked down those stairs or got off that elevator today, it's done. Our former work is done. But the beauty is that Christ's work is done as well. <laughs> that when he cried on the cross, it is finished. What he meant was, your work to please God is finished. That's the shadow that we look back and we get to see. And that changes everything about our present and it changes everything about our future. You are, as they say, more than the worst thing you've ever done because we have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's how you get out of the rut of history. Look at what I've, I just, it's not I who live, but it's Christ's perfect work in me that lets me live a life that's pleasing to our God today and forever. The band can come on up. God's history is faithful, and that means that, that our future is bright for those who lay down their life and live through Christ. I want to uh, I'll encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. I'm not going to read it, but please do, like, read that. And if your community group meets this week, you guys should read that together because he quotes this passage in Hosea. I just want to read this last, uh, this last word of truth, right? By his birth, he has shown us devotion to his mission. This is the history that we get to live in. By his life, he has shown us his ability to overcome sin's trap. 
By the cross, he has secured our forgiveness and salvation. And by his resurrection, he has shown us his power over death and the ability to grant life, full, abundant, and eternal. By his ascension, he shows us that nothing we encounter is outside of his hands. He is the rightful king who rules and reigns at the right hand of God, even right now on your behalf, today and forever. And by his past, he has shown us that he is faithful to return. And we get to respond. We get to sit right where you are, meditate, think about him, stand up and sing, can pray at that prayer bench over there, can pray by that red tree. Someone would love to pray with you. If you're in him and, and, and you have uh, committed to follow Jesus, you trusted him for salvation and eternal life, then you can respond by taking communion. It's just a, a cracker and a little cup. But that reminds us of the body of Jesus that was broken for us and his blood that was spilled for us to give us life. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for your goodness and your grace. Thanks for encouragement, even from tough passages like this in Hosea. Thank you that, that, um, that you're still writing the story and your grace still holds out for us. Thank you that, that we are not the worst thing we've ever done, but for all who call upon your name, you call us sons and, and daughters. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.